Being a kid in the ancient world was no picnic. Infant mortality rates were pretty high. Maybe one child in every three survived to adulthood. It was a dangerous time. It was a dangerous world. And that had an effect on their parents. Children were seen less as a blessing and more of a liability. There was a certain kind of cultural pressure on caregivers actually not to develop strong emotional bonds with children until they kind of you know, reached 12 and 13, the kind of the age of safety. There were actually some ancient Roman writers who compared child rearing to crops. You have to grow them in order to sustain your economy, but don't get emotionally attached. Right? Our contemporary notions of childhood as this, this sweet and innocent time of wonder would have been completely foreign to the world of Jesus and his first followers. Their own childhoods had probably not been particularly happy ones, and they had very little sense of children as adorable and precocious. Children meant pain and suffering and a whole lot of work. Maybe not all that much has changed in 2,000 years. What makes, what makes it all the more shocking in the midst of, I think all of this makes it all the more shocking in the midst of this, this very stereotypically masculine argument that the disciples are having about who is greatest, makes it all the more shocking that Jesus' eye should start to wander to the back of the room, the darkest corner, the, the literal margins of the space in which he's in, beyond the men, beyond the slaves and the women who are tending to the household tasks, down to the, the very bottom rung of the social pyramid, to the children the child who is playing silently in the corner, that Jesus would then cross the room and kneel down to that child's level and stretch out his hand and, and coax her, invite her, welcome her into the center of the room. That was something that did not happen in first century society. This story has, has always sat a little uncomfortably for me. Even when I was a kid myself, I remember hearing the story as a child and, and thinking to myself, how come the kid in the story doesn't get to speak? I mean, maybe that tells you a lot about what kind of kid I was at that age. How, how dare they not give that child a voice? Yeah, I thought, you know, he, Jesus just picks her up like a doll and, you know, lands her in the middle of this group of men, makes her stand there while they talk about her. It felt unfair to me then, and it feels a little unfair to me now. I mean, I kind of wonder what's going through this kid's mind as all of these men are talking about her. I am not a fan, in general, of using children as props, as symbols of adult projections, our notions of whatever is sweet and innocent, the kind of precious moments version of childhood that we're familiar with. Most of what I remember from being a kid was being stressed out most of the time. I was frightened a lot of the time. I hated being left alone in the dark at night. I mean, for all of our romanticized ideas about the innocence and the wonder of childhood, I sometimes wonder if the experience of 21st century kids is not all that different from being a kid in the first century. Being a kid is a scary thing to be sometimes. And we never really get over those fears, I think. Maybe that's why we spend $300 billion a year in mental and behavioral health. A couple of years ago, during the season of Lent, our Family Ministries coordinator, Sharissa Simmons, and I did an exercise with our kids and families at our Church at the Commons service. That's the thing that happens the first Sunday of every month in Kempton Hall. We gather. It's an all-ages worship service, but it's particularly geared to those who have more wiggles, maybe, than the cathedral will allow. So we gather everybody in Kempton. We sing some songs. We have a children's homily, some simplified scripture readings. It's a great way to spend a Sunday morning if you've never been. First Sunday of every month. So it's the first Sunday in Lent. 
time when Christians are traditionally asked to renounce something, to give something up for 40 days. And we were talking that morning about the things that make us afraid. And so at the end of the service, I asked all of our kids and families, all their parents were included in the exercise, I asked everybody to write down something that they were afraid of, something that they were going to try to give up for 40 days. Wrote them down, they, maybe some of them drew a picture of, picture of what they were afraid of if they weren't quite literate yet, but everybody brought up their, their paper and put them in the fear box. And I think the original plan was that we were going to take it out and, and burn them. That's a symbolic thing you do at the beginning of Lent, but it, I think it was raining. So we didn't do that. Um, the box got stashed in a closet somewhere, and I found it randomly as I was cleaning out my office a few months ago, and I found all these great pieces of paper. Oh, it's the, it's the fears. It's the fear box. Uh, and I was really ready to throw them away, but I kind of sat down for a second and started like, kind of going through them, and I found them really moving in a, in a certain kind of way. I mean, some of them are, you know, what you might expect from five and six and seven-year-olds. Here's King Kong and moldy pizza. I am happy to say that I share that fear of moldy pizza. Monsters and nightmares, when mom leaves when I'm asleep, that's one that I share. I'm afraid of guns such as AK-47s. This one I love, I'm afraid of being afraid. That's probably about a, I'm guessing, four-year-old handwriting. I'm afraid of being afraid. I am too. And then there's the, there's the ones as we start to age a little bit, and our fears change, or maybe just the way that we talk about them change. I'm afraid someone I love may die. I'm afraid of my country becoming a fascist country. I'm afraid of becoming complacent. I'm afraid of taking on so much that I accomplish nothing. I'm afraid of being ignored. I'm afraid of being alone. And this one expresses a sentiment that gets picked up in a lot of these fear cards. I am afraid of not being enough. I am afraid of not being enough. My hunch is that that fear is one that many of us share. My hunch is that it's actually at the root of the disciples' argument in today's story in Mark's Gospel. Maybe it's at the root of most of our adult arguments and disagreements. The disciples are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. That's probably the writer's way of saying that they're arguing about succession planning, right? Who's going to take over the reins of power in this movement when Jesus is gone? The writer of James addresses a conflict like this, right? These conflicts and disputes that arise among you, where do they come from? James asks, do they not come from the cravings that are at war within you? You want something and you don't have it, so you commit murder. You covet something and you cannot obtain it. You engage in disputes and conflicts. You're basically children, James says. You're fighting it out with one another on the playground. You haven't grown up in the slightest. You've just learned more and more sophisticated ways to mask this existential fear that you are not enough and the craving that that fear inspires in you. We crave because we're desperate to distract ourselves from the fear that we are not enough. And so we're caught in this endless suffering cycle with no idea how to break out of it. So that's the moment when Jesus walks over to the corner and takes a child up into his arms and brings her to the disciples. He's not only recentering the conversation, right? He is inviting them to look into a mirror. And the text is really interesting here. Jesus takes the child. That verb is the same one that Mark is going to use a few sentences, a few chapters later during the Lord's Supper when Jesus will take bread and wine. This is not a word that indicates grasping or grabbing something. This is setting something apart. 
Jesus sanctifies the child, if you like. He takes the child, he sets her, Mark says, sets her in the middle of them, just as in, in the Last Supper he will lift the bread and wine up to heaven and bless it. He sets the child in their midst. This is almost sacramental. This is almost a ritual that Jesus is doing. The child in some ways becomes the sacrament. He sets the child in the middle of them. And then Jesus does something really interesting that I, I think I've missed in all these years of, of wrestling with the story that seems to objectify the child in the middle. After he stands the child in the middle of the disciples, Mark says, he takes the child into his arms like a shepherd holding a lamb, like a child holding a beloved pet, the way that I hold my cat when she is afraid. Jesus says, whoever among you can learn this, Whoever can learn to welcome the child among you, to welcome the child within you, to welcome that part of you that is crying out to be comforted and held and loved, whoever can learn how to welcome the terrified child at the center of himself is the one who welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me but the one who sent me. In Mark, there's no, there's no nativity story, right? There's no manger scene. There's no virgin birth or angels and shepherds in the skies, right? There is just this moment. This is Mark's incarnation moment, I think. The God-man who embraces a child and says, this is who I am. I am the terrified, lonely child who just longs to be held. And until you learn how to find me in this way, you are looking for God in all the wrong places. That's what we mean when we talk about radical hospitality. This is not mints on pillows, right? It's a hospitality that comes from our root, comes from our radix, the core of our being. We practice this kind of, of rooted hospitality, not because we are nice people. We are not very nice people. We do this because we're in touch with the child in ourselves. And we're engaged in this practice of learning how to hold and nurture and tend to that frightened inner child. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels that until you become as a child, until you connect with that child inside of you, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so it is here. We practice hospitality and welcome to others because it connects us to this root. That root is God, the God who has welcomed us. Here at Trinity, that means we have a special vocation for welcoming children in particular. It might be one of the most important ways that we practice this. You, you might have noticed over the last couple of weeks, there's a new welcome brochure that has showed up in your pews. It's stuck into the prayer books, actually, I think. In most of them, it's stuck into a little red prayer book on your, ra on your rack. Um, it's, it's a new little guide that we put together for parents and for caregivers that sets out our intentions for how we hope to welcome children at Trinity, regardless of their age, right? Um, and it's actually welcome stuff that applies across a, different, a lot of different age ranges, right? Whether you are six or 86, our intent is to welcome you exactly as you are. And for kids at Trinity especially, there is no place that's off limits, right? A piece of what we're trying to do is build this community in which children and youth are as deeply embedded in everything we do as are those of, of riper years. That means every guild, every meeting, every choir rehearsal, every program is potentially a youth group meeting, right? Ever since 
the 19th century, when this cult of childhood came across, this sort of sentimentalized view of purity and innocence, the church's response has been to create this like space of parallel play, these opportunities for kids to get segmented away from adults. Usually we put them in the basement. That's what we do here. We give them specialized caregivers. We give them simplified programming. And I do not mean to denigrate that. Creating safe spaces for kids to just be kids is really critical. It's really important. But kids do not belong in the basement, right? They don't belong in the basement. They don't belong in corners. They don't belong on the margins. Jesus puts them at the center, the dead center, in the midst of a very adult power struggle over status and authority. Jesus says, this is where children belong. And maybe until we can learn how to have adult conversations about power and authority with children in the room, we should not be having them. I still have the fear cards. I have not yet been able to get rid of them. Every so often, I, I take them out and I kind of flip through them. None of them are signed. I have no idea who wrote these cards. But I pray, I pray with them. Um, they've become actually a really important thing for me that keeps me rooted in the work that I think that we're really doing here in this community because these are, these are terrifying times to live in. The fears that we face as children and as adults are real fears. They're not illusory. This is not an easy time to be alive. So our response in this community is to double down on this ancient practice of welcome. In a time when every one of us is terrified of something, how can we learn how to pivot towards hospitality and openness? How can I use the fear that I feel to connect with the fear that you feel? If we can start at that place, right? Each of us is afraid of something. Let's be honest about it. Maybe then we can start connecting with one another across all of the dividing lines that threaten to cut us off from each other. Politics and culture and race and religion and gender and class and creed. If I can connect to the child in myself, then I can connect to the child in you. And if we can practice that, if we can practice welcoming children of any and all ages, if we can get better at providing safe harbor and comfort to the child in every one of us, maybe that's how we start stemming the tides of darkness and division. I mean, at the very least, the promise is that when we do that, we catch a glimpse of the face of Jesus. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus says. Whoever learns how to welcome me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. So in the name of the welcoming one, may we rise to the challenge of living and treating one another in that way. Amen.